One of the great things about hosting a podcast about books that features a new episode every week is that in the beginning of each season, I don't know where my reading journey will take me, but I'm game for the mystery. Joining Book of the Month is kind of the same thing. You know you're heading into new territory, and it's going to be an adventure. Book of the Month is a subscription that helps readers discover new books and helps writers by promoting emerging authors alongside established ones. Here's how it works. Each month, Book of the Month members get to choose from a curated selection of new and early release books. Your pick gets shipped right to your door, and shipping is always free. There's so much excitement knowing that one of your picks just might be that next book to make it into your top 10 most favorite books ever list. And if you like to listen to your books, there are options for you. Book of the Month just launched a curated audiobook option, and you can listen to your selection directly in the app. Here's what's in store for March. Annie Bott by Sierra Greer. Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez, plus several other titles. I chose the memoir Hereafter by Amy Lynn because I'm interested in how people deal with grief and bring their insights to the page. For a limited time, you can get your first book of the month for just $9.99 using the code CHIRP. You can sign up at bookofthemonth.com. If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. I want to take a moment to say I hope you are safe and healthy. Thank you for tuning in to this hour of togetherness where we discuss what unites rather than divides us. Coming up, an interview with Kwame Alexander, author of the poetry collection Light for the World to See. I was in my own world and, and, and people were dancing and listening to a jazz band in the other room. <laughs> I still remember it, it's, but I didn't care. We'll be back with Kwame Alexander in just a bit. Since this is my last podcast episode of 2020, I want to share a few statistics about First Draft. This year, I featured 51 interviews, one a week without fail. Of the 51 interview guests, 31 were women, 12 were individuals of color, one was transgender, one was non-binary, seven identified as being in the LGBTQ community. 39 of the interviews focused on novels, 10 on short stories, and three on poetry collections. Six nonfiction authors were featured, including two who wrote solely on the craft of writing. And I interviewed 10 authors who live in countries other than the USA. I hope I am representing a cross-section of our world, but I am eager to hear from you about what more I can do to represent a diverse roster of writers. I loved every single moment of the more than 75 hours of conversations I conducted and edited. I look forward to doing it again, and I couldn't have done any of it without my patrons. This is where I'm going to ask you for your support and to offer the bigger picture. This was a year of 51 interviews contributing to the last seven plus years of producing First Draft, of which I have a total of over 315 interviews. This is a colossal effort, and it is indeed and without a doubt a labor of love, but there is also labor involved time and effort and a lot of planning and schedule wrangling across time zones worldwide. I emphatically believe that what I do, that what we create, the writers and I and you, the listeners, matters. There's an alchemy that happens with every single interview and every single production. So please, if you value this program, 
please consider becoming a contributing member by donating at www.patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com. You can give any amount, but for just $6 a month, you will receive extras from the show, including ad-free, pitch-free episodes, cuts that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips, and more. I assure you, even $6 a month makes a huge difference to me and the production of this show. Each Patreon member keeps this show going, and it's here because of others like you who transformed from listener to supporter. It's such an amazing and simple way to continue discussions like the one you're about to hear and to keep art and its importance in our culture around the world alive through conversation. Whether this is your first listening experience or you have caught the more than 300 produced episodes, I'm asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft. It's important for me to produce interviews with diverse writers and sometimes on difficult topics, which always add up to conversations which focus on what it means to be alive today. This effort takes money, time, equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. I know there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense to make. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount you donate will go to the continuation of these conversations focused on literary craft, content, and practice, as well as the culture we inhabit. Please stay tuned at the end of the show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. But also, everyone, tell everyone, Tell your hairdresser, your mail delivery professional, your Lyft driver, your uncle's favorite restaurant chef, your mother. Please tell them all to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment. My guest today is poet, author, educator, and speaker Kwame Alexander. He has written 32 books, including The Undefeated, How to Read a Book, Swing, Rebound, and The Crossover, which won a Newbery Medal. Alexander is a regular contributor to NPR's Morning Edition and the recipient of numerous awards, including the Coretta Scott King Author Honor and the Lee Bennett Hopkins Poetry Prize. He is the founding editor of Versify, an imprint of Houghton Mifflin Harcourt Books for Young Readers, whose mission is to change the world one word at a time. His new poetry collection is called Light for the World to See, A Thousand Words on Race and Hope, which contains three poems and is a rap session on race. The slim collection is a lyrical response to the struggles of black lives in our world. It has a very stylized graphic presentation and delves into our country's crisis of conscience and highlights the themes of loss, resilience, and hope. We began the discussion with me asking Kwame Alexander about the genesis of the collection. I wanted to write a book that was a reminder to my daughter that if people view you as marginalized or disadvantaged or other or somehow un-American, it says more about them than it says about you. You must walk through this world believing that you matter. You must walk through this world not letting other people's no's define your yes. You have to remember that your ancestors came through tragedy and they triumphed. And how do, you, how do we know they triumphed? Because you're still here, because you're here. And so I wanted to write a book as a reminder to black Americans of their humanity, that they are human beings first and foremost. And I wanted to write a book that was a wake up call to white Americans that look, if you want a better future, if you want a world that's beautiful, if you want a world that is sort of representative of what the American dream is, 
in all of its splendor and joy, then you got to acknowledge this, the, the trauma of the past. You got to know, you got to know what went wrong, what we did wrong in order to sort of know how to move forward and do better. So that's a lot to sort of, <laughs> to put in a book. And of course, I believe that poetry is a tremendous way to immediately connect with people and, 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 and help people um, become more connected to themselves, to each other, and ultimately to help people become more human beings, more, more, more human, better human. Um, you can talk about so much, so many heavy, weighty things in so few words, and that's the beauty of poetry. So I thought, well, this book will be, you know, short, concise, sparse, rhythmic, figurative, and, and hopefully, you know, my readers will, will, will be engaged by it um, and hopefully, you know, be inspired and empowered by it. The book is composed of three poems that are very, they are spare and very lyrical. And so given what you just said about your intention for the book, I could imagine like going into it that maybe you felt a certain kind of pressure to find the right words. So I'm wondering how crafting these, like what kind of pressure you felt and if it was like a flow state or like serious rewriting and like your hand in your head sometimes. So that's a beautiful way to put it. Um, in that with poetry, it is all about the pressure of finding the right word. I remember I was talking to, uh, I do a lot of school visits, or at least I did when the world was open, visiting students and talking about the power of poetry. And I remember one fourth grader, I asked her, what did she think poetry was? And she said, poetry is the right words in the right order. And I was like, yes. That's it. So this pressure is constant, consistent, and real when you're writing poetry. That is the pressure to find the right word. And, and in addition to being the pressure, it's also the joy and the beauty of it. Like to be able to find that right word that's, you know, or two, that's going to jump off the page and, and make you feel something that you didn't feel before. Because as we know, poetry is not telling, it's showing. And so how do you paint that picture? So, so I, I think like all poets, I embrace that pressure. I love it. It's, you know, it's, it's a beautiful thing. And it's, it's ultimately what separates, you know, a poem from, you know, uh, a, the telling of something. And, and that's why we do this work. So, you know, this book is under a thousand words. And so every word counts, every word matters. Um, and it's, it's, it, it can be literal, but, but most of the time it's gotta be figurative. You've gotta put me, the reader, in a position where I can, you know, where, where your personal becomes my business. And that's what I tried to do with this book and what I try to do with all of my poems is make my personal your business. So, so yeah, I, I love the pressure. It's a part of it, and uh, it, 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 I love it. I'm curious about your your desire to speak to children. I don't mean like literally go speak to them, but also speak to them through your work right. because I know you write a lot of children's books, and I, I gathered that your dad was a principal. So I'm wondering about that sensibility in, in you. Both my parents were teachers and principals. Um, and, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm a kid at heart. And my, I'm 52. And I still feel like I'm a kid. And, and, and <laughs> sometimes I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm just sort of getting over in this adult body, living this adult life. Because I just feel like such a goof, such a, you know, such a, uh, a innocent um, purveyor of hope and joy and, and optimism. And, you know, I, I traffic in saying yes. Like I spend my life saying yes. Um, and so I think the first and foremost, I still feel like a, a child, a kid in so many ways. Um, and, and so I think 
my sensibilities in writing, you know, they reflect that, that need to want to write for my younger self, to want to write um, poems and stories and novels and books that, that I would have loved to have read when I was 10 and 11 and 12, and that I love now. Um, on a, on a, in a more concrete way, you know, my daughter, my second daughter was born in 2008. And Whereas prior to that, I've been writing a lot of love poems and, and suggestive love poems and just um, and that type of thing. When she was born, I began to, to read to her children's picture books by Mo Willems, Elephant and Piggy and, and Jacqueline Woodson. Um, and, and so my sensibilities in reading began to change because I was reading to her. And then, of course, we all know that to become a really good writer the way to, that we become better writers is by reading. And so my writing sensibilities began to change and I began to write more for her. And as she grew older, I began to write for her and her kid and her and her friends. Um, but it seemed very natural to me because that was something that I was immersed in 24 seven with, you know, having a child. And then I think the last piece of it is, you know, being able, I think my first real writerly job was uh, uh, in Arlington, Virginia as a poet in the schools. And I got paid $25 an hour, which was a lot of money at the time. And, and, uh, and it is now still probably. Um, and I, and, but it was one hour a day. <laughs> so, and, and I'd be paid to go into high schools and read poetry to kids. And of course, the kids were like, we don't want to hear a poet. That's boring. And the teachers were like, you know, yeah, this isn't going to work because we don't have success with Shakespeare and Robert Frost. So why do you think you're going to come in here and do something? And I'd go in and, of course, I'd share something accessible, relatable, cool, fun, the kind of poetry I loved reading, whether it was Langston Hughes or, or Pablo Neruda or E.E. E. Cummings, I Carry Your Heart in My Heart, um, or, you know, or Nikki Giovanni. And and the kids would their their eyes would light up. They'd be like, "Whoa, this is poetry." So so all of those things sort of converged, and and I just began writing and enjoying uh, speaking to to young people through verse on the page and the stage. I think what's so interesting about that choice you made to speak to children given some of the topics that you're writing about and thinking about and that you were talking about in the very beginning is that I know for me, like I think many, many, many of my values were shaped by reading as a child. And so you have this amazing opportunity to speak to children and help create this world that you want to see by shaping their views and their morals and the things that really touch them. And then at the same time, it must be really difficult to take these big adult concepts and make them tangible for kids. Absolutely not. It's the opposite. I mean, the kids are already thinking about this stuff. They watch the news. They see the, the police officer's knee on the neck of the, of, of, of the black man. You know, they, they, they're, they're on lockdown. They can't go to school because of a pandemic. You know, they see what they, they see the results of the election and, and the current president's refusal to concede, they see what's happening in the world. They aren't blind. So, so no, it's easy. It's, kids are already thinking about these things. They're talking about these things. They're watching it on television. They're listening to it. And so it's, it's on us as, as the adults in their life, the teachers, the librarians, the writers who are, who, you know, the people who are doing this sacred work to help young people imagine a better world, is to paint a picture of the world that they, that's accurate, that's truthful, that's real. Because the alternative is to, to to dumb it down, to talk down to them, to to assume that it doesn't matter to them, that, that what matters to them is Minecraft and Fortnite. And that's all that matters. Certainly those things matter, but they aren't the only things that matter. And, and kids are smart. And so I choose to to speak to young people like they matter. I choose to speak to young people like, I wanted people to speak to me like I mattered because I did. Because as an 11 year old boy, I would go to sleep listening to uh, 
WTAR 790 AM in Chesapeake, Virginia, which was the oldies but goodies station. And what 11-year-old listens to oldies but goodies? But I did because I wanted to, I was, I thought I liked this girl. I thought I was in love with her and I wanted to hear old love songs. And, and, she, and she, I didn't think she liked me. And my favorite song was Breaking Up is Hard to Do. Now I know, I know that it's true. And I'm an 11 year old, but I'm not telling anybody this, but this is what I'm feeling. So of course, I want to read a Pablo Neruda poem about love. Tonight, I write the saddest lines. Like, of course I want to read it, but you're not going to think I want to read it because you think I, I only care about Atari or Commodore Vic. And, and any kid who's listening to this is, is, is going to have no idea what I'm talking about. So <laughs> Play, PlayStation and Xbox, that's, that's the similarity. Um, that's that, that's what it's akin to, listeners. Um, but that's not all I care about. I care about the things that matter. I care about friendship. I care about love. I care about family. And so write to me about those things. And those are the things I want to write about. And those are the things I try to write about, the things that matter. Because your poems are so short, I'm wondering if you'd be willing to read them and then we can talk about them. I don't know if I want to read all of them, but or maybe I do. But let's start with one of them. Sure. Why don't you pick which one? I'll pick the one that was the most difficult to read, or rather, the most difficult one, the most difficult one to write, which I wrote after um, the killing of George Floyd by Minneapolis police officers. We can't see our home. We can't breathe the air. We can't break the chains. We can't run away. We can't speak our name. We can't keep our tongue. We can't learn to read. We can't sing a song. We can't be in love. We can't be a group. We can't shield our girls. We can't save our sons. We can't hold our own. We can't bend a knee. We can't take a stand. We can't save ourselves. We can't hold a gun. We can't stop that whip. We can't wear the skin. We can't hang ourselves. We can't run. We can't stay. We can't fight. We can't last. We can't vote. We can't voice. We can't whistle. We can't breathe. We can't breathe. We can't cross a bridge. We can't ride a bus. We can't be in church. We can't have a dream. We can't wear our skin. We can't wear a hood. We can't play our songs. We can't be ourselves. We can't be at home. We can't be alone. We can't be unarmed. We can't shoot ourselves. We can't hold a gun. We can't hold a toy. We can't hold a phone. We can't do a thing. We can't drive a car. We can't walk the street. We can't ride a bike. We can't run away. We can't be a boy. We can't be a man. We can't be afraid. We can't break these chains. We can't walk. We can't run. We can't breathe. We can't live. We can't breathe. We can't live. But we will not die. It's called American Bullet Points. The publishing industry is a system. Books are mirrors in people's experiences. And in season two of Missing Pages, we'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial. She wasn't pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired. We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't worldproof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts. A new equation for switching on outcomes is here from PwC. It's human-led and tech-powered. It's PwC with Oracle, SAP, Salesforce, and Workday. It's PwC with Microsoft, AWS, and Google. Simplify your systems and amplify your results. Switch on outcomes with PwC and their alliances. Learn more at pwc.com. You said it was the hardest to write. You definitely have a trope like the repeating about we can't that I would assume clearly comes from, you know, we can't breathe. But can you can you share more about, you know, all these feelings you had and how you alighted on 
sort of that rhythm and, and that word, those word choices. Yeah, all the all three poems in Light for the World to See have that repetition, have that refrain, or have a refrain, have have a have a certain kind of rhythm to it. Um, and I I tend to think that you know when you're using repetition um, in a poem, that it helps with emphasis. It helps it helps with emphasis and and really sort of drilling the point, and it becomes you know, because of the rhythm of it, it becomes, for lack of a better word, entertaining or, you know, in a way that as the listener or the reader, you know sort of what to expect, but you really don't know what to, what to expect. And so it, it helps you just keep turning the page. And I find that, you know, ultimately I want you to get to the end of the piece. And so those are some of the poetic devices that I chose to use, you know, in, 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 in these, in these three poems. But, um, you know, the idea behind we, all, all of these things we can't do, whether you're Ahmaud Arbery and you're, 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 you're a teenage black kid living in Georgia and you can't even go for a job, you know, or you're Breonna Taylor, you can't even be in your apartment. Um, and so all of these things that we can't do, it just made me start thinking about you know, going back to the the first Africans that were kidnapped and 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 taken to America, and how they you know they could no longer see their 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 country, their land, the shores where they walked. You know, they 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 were not allowed to speak their language. They could not read, and so I just started thinking about all these things we can't do. And then it sort of dawned on me that, but wait a minute, each of these things we did. Well, we did learn to read. You know, we did gather and, and sing in churches. We did love. Like we did. So so it's 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 sort of a juxtaposition of all the things that we've been told that we can't do. Yet you could easily substitute the word can in each of those lines because we did them. And so the hard the hard part about it writing that this piece was the ending because when I wrote that first draft of the poem, it was, uh, the last line was, but we can die. And then I got to thinking, talking to a couple of friends about it. And they were like, Carmen, you got to remember we're still here. And so it just hit me like Langston Hughes in his poem. I'm still here. No, but we won't die. All these things that we've been through, we are still here. We will not die. So it was, you know, I thought the poem was done when I wrote that first draft and had the ending, but it turned out it wasn't that I had to sort of flip it on its head and it gave a whole different kind of, you know, sort of feeling at the end of the poem. And, and I knew the poem would be dark and I knew it would be sad and I knew it would be, you know, traumatic because those were the things that I was feeling. But ultimately, like I said, I'm a say yes person. I, I live in this space of hope. I'm, a, I'm an ultimate optimist. So if I'm gonna write something that's dark and, and depressing and traumatic, it's gonna have to end with some hope. Yeah, I definitely felt that as I was reading it, you know, all these cants, 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 and it's building and it's like this litany and it's this truth of the history. And then you see these last lines and it's that change in rhythm and there's no contractions and it's really bold. Like instead of all the things that can't, it's like we will and the, the survival and the and the hope uh, was so wrapped up not just in the words but in the in the form yeah you, you you summed it up perfectly so i'm curious about um because this book is it's a very small very beautiful book it's black and white and yellow and orange and gray and the the type on some words like we can't sing a song is really big and um, We Can't Be Afraid takes up a whole page. 
and um, in some in some cases, like we can't breathe, you have we can't is small and breathe is big. So I envisioned that the layout of this was important, but I'm assuming you didn't write it this way. So I'm curious about that process. Yeah. So the designer for the book, um, it's a South African artist. His name is Sindiso, and we sort of gave him free reign to to visualize the words. And I, I feel like I gave, we gave him an audio of me, you know, reading the pieces. And it's important that in, in many of the books that I write, in particular this one, that the words on the page reflect the way I'd like you to hear them. I'd like you to read them. So yeah, so, so I think that, you're spot on that Sindiso, you know, took, took the, he, 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 he created a visual melody on the page um, so that you could, um, as you're reading it, you can understand where the accent should go, where the emphasis should be, where the, where the breath should come, where the, where, where the, uh, the, the, the speeding up should occur, like all that stuff. I think, went into it. And I, I don't know, you know, after we passed it on to him, we just, we may have had a few edits after he set back his initial sketches and so forth, but we let him do his thing. Um, so you got two sort of pieces of art happening here. You got, you got, you got the words and then you have the, the visual interpretation, almost like an expressive, like he took my words and, and created a piece of art um, based on and or inspired by another piece of art being my words. And I think he did an amazing job with it. You open the book with sort of a letter uh, called Freedom Now, and you're writing about an incident of yours in childhood in, in 1978 after there was a police killing of Arthur Miller, who was a, a black civic leader. And you're going on this field trip and, and you're scared at first. You're going with your school and your dad is saying, you know, everyone's going and you're scared because you've seen the violence. But when you get there, there's a reverend um, and he's, he's chanting and you're chanting, you know, we're fired up. We can't take no more. We're fired up. We can't take no more, which is poetic in itself. And I was thinking about, you know, maybe that, that instinct for poetry was, was rooted in you in, in times like these where you started off maybe one way and ended another. Absolutely. I mean, you, 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 again, I think poetry in my life from a very early age, you know, it, it dictated my creative agenda for, 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 for the years to come. I tell people all the time, I didn't find poetry, it found me. But, you know, you talked about what happened in 78 with the killing of Arthur Miller in Crown Heights, and which I talk about in, in the preface, but it started much earlier than that in terms of, and I couldn't articulate how much I loved poetry or how much it meant to me, but it started much earlier for me, you know, as a two-year-old, as a three-year-old, because my my mother, we lived in, in New York City, and my parents were in graduate school at Columbia University, and they were studying to become educators. And they, they had sort of a focus on multicultural children's literatures, which meant that books were everywhere in my home. Like, that's, I don't remember, you know, toys. I'm sure I had them. Um, I don't remember, you know, uh, what I ate. Obviously, I ate. But I remember the books. And at three years old, I remember Spin a Soft Black Song by Nikki Giovanni. I remember Dr. Seuss, Fox and Socks. And apparently it was my favorite book at that age, Fox, Socks, Knox, Box, Fox and Socks, Socks and Box. And I wanted to read it all the time. I wanted it to be read to. I memorized it. And so, you know, one, one particular day at school, at the end of uh, the day, I had built a house out of blocks and a, a classmate, another three-year-old had knocked over my house and I was livid. 
I wanted to show my mom when she got to school what I'd done. And so I responded like as if those were fighting. He wanted to fight. And I responded with the only weapons I had. And I said, those were my blocks that you flipped. Lest you want a quick payback, better fix my quick block stack. And the kids started crying. <laughs> and when my mom came to pick me up. The teacher said, Mrs. Alexander, we have a problem. Your son is arrogant. He intimidates the other kids with his words. My mother said, thank you. We teach him to use his words. So I think for me, poetry has just always been a part of the, it's been the language that I've learned to communicate in, to, to the language that has built confidence in me, the language that allowed me to find my voice, the language that allowed me to know my worth. And, and it continued, you know, throughout my, my, my schooling and my childhood. And, and so when I heard on, on, on the Brooklyn Bridge in 1978, with, you know, hundreds of other classmates who were marching with me to protest police brutality, when I heard, we're fired up, we can't take no more. We're fired up, we can't take no more. That was that refrain of resistance. That was that, that was that poetic, you know, moment that built confidence in me that allowed me to stop crying and feel like, okay, this is gonna be okay. I think literature has done that for me throughout my life. And it's and so when I write, you know, ultimately. I am trying to do the same thing. I am trying to empower. Yeah, I got to write it in a way that's entertaining. But ultimately, I think I'm just trying to teach. You know, it sounds like your parents being these educators and, and having such a, a big influence on, on your reading life and you writing this from your daughter. I see this strong family ethic really there. And I was curious about your parents, maybe. How did they meet and, and where, where did they grow up? They met at Norfolk State University in college. My mother passed away three years ago, um, so I could probably tell this story. <laughs> and she wouldn't, you know, she, she, obviously she won't know about it. But um, they met because my father was a basketball star, pretty popular dude. My mom was beautiful and brilliant. And, and he was on the phone talking, on a payphone, talking to one of his girlfriends. And he had been talking forever and she needed to call home. And she had been waiting in line to talk. And she just got frustrated. So she went up to the phone booth and she said, honey, come on. Let's go, love. She said that so that his girlfriend could hear him. <laughs> and apparently the girlfriend hung up and he got off the phone. And that was how they met, which I find to just be hilarious and such, you know, what what a what a great story. Um so, you know, that's how they met. And and then they uh um after you know finishing college. My mother probably would have stayed in Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, my father had big plans and big dreams. He wasn't as smart as my mother. Um, and he had, uh, there had been a notice on the bulletin board that Columbia University was offering scholarships for black students who, who met a certain criteria. And, he, and, and of course that's in New York City. And he told her she should apply. This is after they had begun dating. And she was like, no, no. I'm I'm good. I'm gonna I'm gonna teach here in Norfolk. And he said, No, you gotta take this opportunity. And and she finally he coerced her into applying. And she knew she wasn't going to do it, but she got accepted and she got the full ride. And and then he convinced her to take it. He's like, Well, you got it, you gotta take it now. And then and so she left and he had another year in school and she went to Columbia University and and the next year he followed in the doctoral program. And, uh, and that's, that's, that was the beginning. I grew, I grew up in the dormitories, you know, at Columbia University as a, as a well, I was you know, the one as a two-year-old. 
So I grew up around this very literary, artistic, academic, literacy environment. I think, uh, like I, you know, like I mentioned earlier, there were times where I wanted to be a doctor or, or I wanted to play, I wanted to be a tennis star, you know, in college. And, but I think this was definitely destined for me to, to figure out a way to change the world one word at a time. At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray Strandom wing chair, was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. Introducing Batiste's wet-activated and touch-activated dry shampoo. With breakthrough technology that absorbs oil and releases bursts of fragrance whenever you sweat or touch your hair for up to 24 hours, it's the ultimate hair care for girls on the go. Try the newest dry shampoo that's activated by you. Batiste, the future of hair care is here. Buy Batiste dry shampoo online or in store at your nearest retailer. I saw that they that you first performed these poems on ESPN's The Undefeated. I don't know what that website is, but I thought that was interesting. Theundefeated.com is a website that Kevin Merida is the editor and producer of. And it's it's a it's a an online destination that's an, it's the the intersection of race, sports, and culture. And when they were launching in 2016 or 17, I had known Kevin from his days at the Washington Post. He was a managing editor there. And when they were launching theundefeated.com, he said, we need a poem to help launch The Undefeated. Can you write one? And I knew that I, I thought, yeah, why not? And he said they were going to produce a video of the poem. And I thought, great. And there was a poem that I had written seven, eight years prior when Barack Obama was elected president. And it was a poem called An American Poem, which sort of detailed the history of Black people in America as a way of writing a biography of America for my then newborn daughter to show her how we got to this point where we now have a Black president. So I, I tried to write it from the, from the first Africans, you know, being brought being kidnapped and, and unloaded in Jamestown to, you know, November 2008 when Obama was elected. And so I wrote this long, epic poem. So when he called, I thought, I'll take that poem and rework it because it has some of the things I'd want to talk about. Um, and it just went over. The, the video went viral and we had a great time with that. And Mar Margaret Ramo, who is my editor at Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, she said, Kwame, that poem should be a book. And I thought, well, fine, let's do it. I had never thought of it as a book. It was a poem. And she got in touch with Kadir Nelson, who's pretty acclaimed illustrator and, and portrait artist. And he does a lot of the New Yorker covers. And he loved it, and he wanted to illustrate the book. So it ended up being published as a children's book. Um, the second thing that happened, and it ended up winning the Caldecott Medal, which is for the most distinguished illustration for a children's book in America. And it won a Newbery honor. So, so my, my editor, Margaret, had some vision. She, she has serious vision. Um, the second thing that happened is I was in Florida, and uh, between 2015 and 2018, I probably visited about 1,500 schools uh, performing for students presenting poetry, talking about the power of literature. At one particular school, we were in Florida. I was with my guitarist. I traveled with a guitarist named Randy Preston, and we were in Gulfstream, Florida. And I think it was a Sunday, and I had seen and read and heard about Colin Kaepernick taking a knee and just the uproar. And I thought, really, over taking a knee, people are upset at this silent protest? this nonviolent protest. And I ended up writing a poem called Take a Knee and just how, how, and what it means to take a knee and how absurd the resistance 
to taking a knee is. And and then, of course, finally, George Floyd, um, the video surfacing um, of his killing, of his brutal killing. And I couldn't watch the video, but I was I needed to write about it. And so I ended up writing a piece called American Bullet Points. So all three of these pieces, 2008, 2016, 2020, um, earlier this year, Margaret Ramos said, Kwame, I think these three poems should be a book and you should write an introduction to it. Um, and of course, that was her vision and, and, and it came into fruition with light for the world to see. I'm wondering if you want to talk about one of the other poems and or read it. You don't have to, but I'd love to talk about it either way. The Undefeated. This is for the unforgettable, the swift and sweet ones who hurdled history and opened a world of possible. The ones who survived America by any means necessary and the ones who didn't. This is for the undeniable, the ones who scored with chains on one hand and faith in the other. This is for the unflappable, the sophisticated ones who box adversity and tackle vision, who shine their light for the world to see and don't stop till the break of dawn. This is for the unafraid, the audacious ones who carried the red, white, and weary blues on the battlefield to save an imperfect union, the righteous marching ones who sang, we shall not be moved because black lives matter. This is for the unspeakable. This is for the unspeakable. This is for the unspeakable. This is for the unlimited, unstoppable ones, the dreamers and doers who swim across the big sea of our imagination and show us the majestic shores of the promised land. This is for the unbelievable, the we real cool ones. This is for the unbending, the black is the night is beautiful ones. This is for the underdogs and the uncertain, the unspoken but no longer untitled. This is for the undefeated. This is for the undefeated. This is for you and you and you. This is for us. So it's such a poem of of unity and bringing people together. And it, the the note you wrote in the book was that you wrote it in D.C. in 2008 after the birth of my second daughter and the election of Barack Obama as the 44th president of the United States of America. Was this one that you thought about a lot before you put your pen to paper? Did it? What was the the creation process like for this one? Oh my goodness. Yes. This was so in my sort of dream of dreams, I'd hoped that one day I'd be invited to deliver the inaugural poem at a presidential inauguration. You know, I wanted to do what Maya Angelou had done for 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 Bill Clinton. And of course, you know, that's a that's 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 such a grandiose dream that's probably never gonna happen. But I always thought it's gonna happen one day. So when Barack Obama was elected, I thought this is going to be my time, my chance. And I remember being contacted by. <sighs> Some organ, and of course, I wasn't going to be, you know, the inaugural poet because that was Richard Blanco. But I remember being contacted by some organization, and they were having an inaugural ball. And of course, everybody was. There were so many inaugural balls. Uh, there was the main one, but there were so many balls happening. And one of the groups contacted me, and they asked me to write an inaugural poem. And I thought, yes, finally, my day has come. I'm at, I'm going to be writing an inaugural poem for like the 47th inaugural ball that's happening that day. Um, and so I spent a lot of time trying to write it in a way as if I was delivering it at the inaugural uh, inauguration. And I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how I am going to write this in a way that my 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 daughter will be able to listen to it 
and and hear the rhythm and repetition that will keep her engaged as you know a, a, a six month old because she has, isn't going to understand the words. So I spent a lot of time figuring out how to make it historical. Um, and I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to make it, you know, figurative and how to make it poetic. So a lot of time went into it. Absolutely. And it was one of the longest poems I'd written. I think the original version of it was probably about a thousand words. And this version now is obviously a fraction of that. But once I figured out that, you know, what the the refrain, as it were, was going to be, what the repetition was going to be, then it was just a matter of telling a story. And uh, and I think ultimately all three of these poems are this, they have that beginning, middle, and end. They're, they're telling you that story, for sure. What did it feel like when you were at the ball reading this? <laughs> I was I was in heaven. I was in my element. I was delivering what I thought was going to be the, you know, this this literary, you know, moment, this defining literary moment in our country. Um, and so I was in my own world, and 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 people were dancing and listening to a jazz band in the other room. <laughs> I still remember it, it's, but I didn't care. There were there were thirty or forty people watching and listening to me. I was on stage, and uh, people were eating and, and and dancing and 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 it felt right and it felt again. I don't write for applause acceptance. I write to inspire and engage and entertain and empower. And so, but it's got to do that for me. And every time I read that poem just like I you know, just read it with you, I am inspired. I am ready to take on the day. I'm ready to, to get back out into the world and be, you know, as, as, as my, my preschool teacher said, I'm ready to be arrogant in my... And, and when I say that, let's be clear, not in the, I'm not being arrogant in the sense that you're not, I'm better than you. No, I hope you're arrogant in who you are. We can all be arrogant. There's this great quote that I, you know, discovered while I was re researching the, the most recent book I wrote on Muhammad Ali called Becoming Muhammad Ali. And the quote goes like this. I am the greatest, not because I am better than anyone, but because no one is better than me. In the preface to this, you wrote about that day when you went to this march and that you were wondering if if the chance that you had that day were strong enough to carry the weight and, and the, if words are strong enough and that this book is your attempt to answer that question. It's you lifting up your voice and saying something about racism. And I'm wondering how you want people to, to read this or if you're, if you're hoping that it will have a certain consequential impact on people's lives. Everything I write. I am hopeful that it has a, conse a consequence, that it has a positive uh, influence. Again, my goal is to change the world one word at a time. And now that's pretty, it's pretty lofty. Um, but I ultimately want, you know, young people, I ultimately want readers to be moved in some, you know, profound significant, meaningful way. Um, I, wanted, I want you to feel something. I believe if you're going to think differently, you got to feel differently. If you're going to act differently, you got to think differently. Like, I want people to change for the better. I know what reading a good book does for me. I know what writing a good poem does for me. I, wanna, I want that to happen to everyone. Yeah, that's what I want. I'm not just writing for you to enjoy a story. So it doesn't matter what book it is, whether it's light for the world to see or, or any book, I, I still want the same impact. I want to have the same impact. And, and I don't want to be didactic. You know, so that's where the craft part comes in. Like, I want to be a good writer so that you actually can get through the book and don't feel like you've been lectured. But yeah, ultimately, I, am, I want to teach, you know, 
I, I want to teach in a way that my mom taught me. I want to teach people to use their word to find their voice, to lift their voice. Absolutely. That's what I want from all of my books. And I want you to, you know, on some, on, on another level, I want you to, to say, man, it's over. Oh, I want to read it again. Or I got to go get another book. I want you to put down the book and I want to pick up another one. I want it to be contagious. In the very beginning, you said that this was really, you were writing this for your daughter. And I'm wondering about her reaction. <laughs> well, it's, 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 you know, you know how kids are. They, they claim they don't, they're not interested or you're not cool. And then, you know, so, something will happen and you'll, you'll get a glimpse that, oh my gosh, they were paying attention. I, I, gave, I gave a speech once at the International Literacy Association and it was about 5,000 teachers and librarians and media specialists in, you know, the Boston Convention Center. And I'm giving this speech and my daughter's in the front row and maybe she was seven at the time. And, and during the speech, I, you know, I'm talking about books and growing up with, with books and how when I was 11, my dad made me read his dissertations and I began to hate books. And, and, and I said, and then, and then one day I discovered Muhammad Ali's autobiography called The Greatest. And I could not put it down. It's 400 pages. And it reinstilled this love of literature that I, you know, because I had fallen out of love with books because my dad was making me read this stuff that I didn't want to read. And so I wasn't reluctant. I wasn't interested. There's a difference. And so in the moment that I sort of have this realization on stage, I, I say books are amusement parks. And sometimes kids got to be able to choose to ride. And I'm like, wow, that was pretty great. That's it. And for the rest of the conference, people are using my quote. It's on slides. It's become this thing. And maybe about a month or two. And, and so my daughter's like, after it's over, my daughter's like, can we go eat lunch? Cool. About a month or so later, we're on a flight to Singapore. I'm going to speak at a school in Singapore. And we're on a flight. And it's 11, it's, it's 11 12-hour flight. And I say, look. And she, she immediately sits down and she's looking at all the movies and games. I'm like, turn it off. You cannot watch it until you, you know, read an entire book. And she pulls out um, a graphic novel. And I say, that's not going to work. You're going to need to read some nonfiction or a novel. And she looks at me in the middle of this flight and she says, Dad, I thought books were amusement parks and kids got to be able to choose to ride. <laughs> and I just crack up. <laughs> and I'm just laughing and because like, what can I say? And I say, all right, go for it. So it is my hope that that my kid is learning a great deal. And it is and, uh, for, from my writerly life. Um, and I suspect that she is. Well, she's your daughter. <laughs> Indeed she is. <laughs> I mean, I could hear your, your spirit in her. Right, right. She gets it honest. Yeah. I'm wondering if you can read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer. I went down to the river. I sat down on the bank. I tried to think but couldn't, so I jumped in and sank. I came up once and hollered. I came up twice and cried. If that water hadn't been so cold, I might have sunk and died, but it was cold, cold in that water. It was cold. I took the elevator 16 floors above the ground. I thought about my baby and thought I would jump down. I stood there and I hollered. I stood there and I cried. If it hadn't been so high, I might have jumped and died, but... It was high up there. It was high. So since I'm still here living, I guess I will live on. I could have died for love, but for living, I was born. Though you may hear me holler, as you may see me cry, I'll be dogged, sweet baby, if you're going to see me die. Because life is fine. 
fine as wine. Life is fine. Langston Hughes, poem called Life is Fine, been tremendously inspired as many writers and poets and, and people have been by his verse. Can you read something you wrote, maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft? So there's this thing called a reverso poem where you, you write it and you can read it different ways. You can read it back, you can read it forwards, you can read it backwards. Um, and so at the end of the Becoming Muhammad Ali novel, which I wrote with James Patterson, there's a poem called Amen, Amen, Amen. And I wrote it as a reverso poem. Granddaddy Herman, because of you, I know who I am, I know whose I am, and I know where I'm going. I hope you can see that your words changed me. And I remember you told me I am the greatest, not because I am better than anybody. I am the greatest because nobody is greater than me. I'm going to win the golden gloves, even though I'm the underdog. I've been training my body and my mind and tomorrow's the real beginning for me. I guess I just wanted to say thank you. And that even though I haven't been back here since the funeral, I think about you all the time and I love you, Granddaddy Herman. And that's the forward way of reading a poem that young Cassius Clay wrote about his grandfather. And this is me reading it backwards. I love you, Granddaddy Herman. I think about you all the time and the funeral, even though I haven't been back here since, since that, I guess I just wanted to say thank you. And tomorrow's the real beginning for me. I've been training my body and my mind. And even though I'm the underdog, I'm going to win the golden gloves because nobody is greater than me. I am the greatest, not because I am better than anybody, than anybody. I am the greatest. You told me, and I remembered your words changed me. I hope you can see that I know where I'm going. I know whose I am. I know who I am because of you, Granddaddy Herman. Amen. 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 Oh my God, that poem took seven days to write because you gotta get it exactly right so that it so that it makes sense. Where do you write? Uh, when the world was open, I would write. Uh, I live in London, so I would write at a cafe in London called Raoul's. Um, I would write at a tea house in Soho. Um, I like writing. I like being around people. I like eavesdropping. You know, um, I wrote in the park. Uh, now I write in my flat. Um, I write inside because, you know, the world is shut down and I want to be safe. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I walk a lot. You know, there are a lot of parks in London, High Park, Regent's Park. I do a lot of walking. And, and, I, do, and I love walking. When I'm walking, I'm listening to podcasts or, or listening to an audio book or, or just thinking. Um, uh, when the world was open, it, I definitely would go to the beach. The beach is a place I love to be at. Um, and of course, um, one, of the, one of the places I frequent is a place called Netflix. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? <sighs> I will read it to my daughter and my wife. I will read passages to them and get their feedback. Um, not the whole thing, but I'll read passages. And then there's a group of people, a group of writers, um, who I'll share a draft with after it's done um, before I send it to my editor. How have you dealt with rejection? Dribble, fake, shoot, miss. Dribble, fake, shoot, miss. Dribble, fake, shoot, miss. Dribble, fake, shoot, swish. When you're a writer, when you're an artist, when you're a human being, rejection is, is a part of it. I get, I, I, my first novel got rejected 23 times. I do not let other people's nose define who I am. I just try to keep believing in myself. Even when conventional wisdom is saying, no, not going to work. Nobody's in. Nobody's down for it. I believe if you say it 12 times, believe it 12 times, your heart will catch up. You'll feel it. Um, I just do it. I, I, I practice saying yes constantly. I practice walking through doors even when I don't know what's on the other side. What is your favorite word? Yes. Yes. Thank you so much for your time and, and your, your honesty and enthusiasm. I really, really appreciated talking to you. As did I. This has been great. I appreciate this. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Kwame Alexander, author of the poetry collection Light for the World to See. If you like today's show, check out my interview with poet Erica Meitner, whose collection Holy Moly Carry Me 
focuses on race, a white mother parenting a black son, gun violence, and perseverance. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 280 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Ben Oakry, Mark Wunderlich, and Jamie Harrison. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. May 2021 be the beginning of better days for the world at large. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.